Hey y'all, this is May. Now to welcome you to Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. This season, I'll be discussing murders from the year 1970 through 1979. Today's story is of a male murderer from 1979. So grab you some Whataburger and open that Dr. Pepper. Let's go back in time to Texas true crime. On December 3rd, 1979, 11 people, including three high school students, were killed when a crowd of general admission ticket holders waiting to see the band, The Who, surged forward in an attempt to enter the Riverfront Coliseum in Cincinnati. That same year, it seemed everyone liked the song YMCA, except the actual organization. The upbeat song spent 26 weeks on the Billboard Hot 100 chart, reaching the number two slot in 1979. Yet this success bothered the real-life Young Men's Christian Association officials. YMCA then sued the village people for libel because they pointed out that its trademarked name had been used without permission. They then started seeking an amicable out-of-court settlement. But eventually, both parties made peace and the Y changed its tune, even stating, We at the YMCA celebrate the song. Another thing that happened in 1979 was a fiesta event ending in gunfire. Please join me in walking down Erie Lane. In 1891, Mrs. James L. Sladen, San Antonio's congressman's wife, was inspired by the Flower Parade of Spain and wanted San Antonio to have its own parade, April 21st, in memory of the fallen heroes of the Alamo and Battle of San Juanito. With the help of Mr. J.S. Alexander, the idea gained the support of the prominent all-male San Antonio club, and the Battle of Flowers Association was born. They named Mrs. H.D. Campman its first chairman. The Battle of Flowers Association is a civic nonprofit organization whose objective is to teach the history of our state and keep the patriotic traditions of Texas and San Antonio alive. This is the only all-woman, all-volunteer organization producing events of its kind. The Battle of Flowers Parade began adding more events held over the course of a week in what is now known as Fiesta. In 1895, the Battle of Flowers Parade Association began crowning a carnival queen, and in 1909, the Fiesta royalty expanded to include a princess and 24 duchesses. Fiesta San Antonio events are held in San Antonio and neighboring areas. The Texas Cavaliers River Parade started in 1941 after a group of Texas Cavaliers witnessed boats decorated with flowers in the floating gardens of Mexico City. Texas Cavaliers and the parade sponsors decorate every float with bright flowers and vibrant colors. A Day in Old Mexico and Chariada is an event that started in 1947 that aims to preserve the skill of charilla, a centuries-old tradition 
and educate further generations and the general public to explore the distinctive culture that upholds the customs and family traditions of Mexican horsemanship, which is Mexico's official sport predating and inspiring the American rodeo. The Fiesta Flambeau Parade started in 1948 and is internationally known as America's largest illuminated night parade. And a night in Old San Antonio started in 1948 as a one-street, one-night fair festival, but by 1958, it had expanded to four nights. Fiesta has been a treasured tradition in San Antonio for over 130 years. On April 27, 1979, however, on the 84th anniversary, shots rang out in the minutes before the Battle of Flowers Parade was set to begin. It was 1 o'clock p.m. There were about 5,000 people in the starting area for the parade. Seven police officers were standing at the front, ready to lead the event. Witnesses heard someone shout, Traitors! 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 And then everyone heard shots fired, saw all the officers go down, and everyone else followed by dropping to the ground. For about 30 minutes, shots rang out and then it all stopped. It took the police another 60 minutes to enter the Winnebago where the shots came from and found the sniper dead. After everything calmed down, it was learned that the sniper killed two and wounded over 50. Here are some of the witness accounts from the shooting. Susan Springfield, reporter from radio station WOAI, one of the two news stations broadcasting the event, spoke into the radio saying, My gosh, we're being shot at! As she fell flat to the ground. Captain Patrick Nichols was standing with six other officers and the parade chairman in the middle of Broadway. He stated, One officer was shot, and when we started to his aid, other shots were fired and other officers hit the ground. Sounded like an automatic weapon to us. I witnessed numerous instances of extreme valor during the shooting, including several civilians and policemen who risked their lives to remove the injured and about 50 parade watchers pinned down by the gunfire. 18-year-old German exchange student Tom Muller, who was on the Paul Bunyan float with eight other teens, explained, There was a policeman right next to me, right next to me, not three yards away, he was hit in the leg and just fell over. We all laid down. At first, there was no panic. I heard the bullets whistling over my head. It was just horrible. You can't just imagine what it was like. Oh my, it was horrible. I've never seen anyone shot before and heard bullets whistling over my head. I could see the smoke, but I couldn't see any guns. All of a sudden, people started running even though he was still shooting, but they didn't seem to care about it, and they started running. I ran too. 15-year-old Stormy Shiraz from the same float set. I saw a 7-year-old kid look around the side of a car to see what was happening, and he got shot in the neck. I don't see how he could be alive. Lisa Duncan, a clarinet player who traveled from Jacksonville, Florida with her high school band, 
talked about the event saying, I can't believe it. We were waiting to get a Coke at Grayson and Avenue B, about a half block from the shooting. We heard the shots and somebody said, get down. We were hiding behind cars. It was really chaos. People were falling. People were running around everywhere. There was a band right there. She pointed to a vacant lot even closer to the location of the gunfire. People were trying to get them over here. Officer James Middleton was working an off-duty detail escorting the Fiesta Queen and Princesses. After the shooting began, Middleton crawled into a police car and with his body hanging sideways out the driver's side door, drove the car in reverse so that it would block some of the crowd and the wounded from continued shots. He also pulled injured Sergeant Ben Donahue onto the car's floorboards. Israel Rico, nine years old, explained, I remember seeing the police officers going in the middle of the intersection, and all of a sudden you hear, pow, like a firecracker went off, and this police officer grabbed his leg and went down. All of a sudden, you just started hearing shots ring out, and people started running all over the place. I would describe it as someone had stepped on a bomb. Chairs were all over the place. Programs were flying. He said he and his parents did the same as everyone else, trying to escape the madness. I was going northbound towards the curb, and then I feel something just like pop go in my arm. It felt like someone had thrown a rock, and it hit me. Then I noticed blood was trickling down my arm. I turn around and I see that I am bleeding. And I see that my mom falls down and my dad's picking her up. I felt helpless. All three of them were shot before they were able to seek shelter at a nearby office. I was scared. I remember hiding under a table when we got in there. And this woman had handed me a cracker to calm my nerves. I got out, and I remember seeing this woman, who was one of the parade commissioners, that she had a big hat on. She was wiping her neck, thinking she was sweating, and my dad, who didn't speak good English, had to tell her that she had been shot as well, and that it was blood running down her neck. I could still see the commotion happening outside. Police cars then started coming. It was like an episode of SWAT or Adam-12. They were getting out, and they were trying to fire at the trailer where the sniper was at. Tear gas was everywhere. 19-year-old John Phillips, the assistant manager of the tire shop where the Winnebago was parked, said, Myself and the owner, Gus, we started grabbing women and children and taking them in the store. It was a panic. Nobody knew what to do. We must have had at least 50 or 75 people jammed behind tires, desks, everything. Most of the time, I was flat on my back in the street, trying to grab more women and kids and get them the heck out of the way. Police kicked their way through a back window in the tire store and used it to get access to the street, street near the shooter's vehicle. At one time, the man turned around and started shooting directly into our building. When the police were in here, we've got bullet holes all over this building, both inside and out. This place is just torn apart.
The two victims who died from the shooting were 46-year-old Amalia Castillo and 26-year-old Ida Dollard. Amalia was a mother of 13. She actually sat right in front of the motorhome as it seemed like a prime spot and where she and her family would be able to sit in the shade of the Winnebago. When the shooting started, she threw herself on top of her six-year-old granddaughter, puncturing her lung, but saving her life. She was shot in the left shoulder, seven feet from the door of the camper. Two more of her grandchildren, Cecilia Castillo, eight, and Cordelia Castillo, 11, were also injured in the shooting. After the attack, the Castillo family waited in the emergency room of Baptist Memorial Hospital for word on their several injured family members and had also heard their mother might have been killed. A little while later, her son, James Castillo, walked into the room and told the family, Mama's dead. Ida Dullard, or in some reports, Ida Long, was returning from one of the concession stands along the parade route when she was shot in the back and left shoulder. She fell just five feet from the trailer door. Hazel Brown, Ida's mother, stated, I just keep praying that I can keep on for the children's sake, but you know, it's really hard to pretend there's nothing wrong when you really feel like crying all the time. Most of the injured received only superficial wounds from the gunshots themselves, ricochet gunfire, or flying debris. It's got to be a miracle if all those wounded survive to have 46 people hit and only two dead, said Inspector Talbert, who upon entering the motorhome saw at least six rifles lined up on the back of the seats. He had enough ammunition to start a war. He came prepared to stay a while. I saw a lot of loaded clips in there. I assume he was dead when they went in. I suspect he was killed before they put the tear gas in there. So, who was the sniper, and why did this attack happen? His name was Ira Atterbury, a 64-year-old, heavyset, bald, former independent trucker, and lifelong bachelor who lived in a green-and-white Winnebago. He was a Missouri native who served in the Navy, Coast Guard, and Army during World War II. While working as a truck driver in October 1958, Atterbury got into a wreck that killed three women, Veronica Basbuggle, 58, Susanna Butcher, 59, and Catherine McGalfell. The Ohio women were traveling to the Notre Dame football game when they failed to stop at an intersection and were hit by a semi-truck driven by Ira. Two of the women were thrown from the car. Ira injured his neck and back in the crash and had to retire from truck driving. In 1974, Ira had another accident while target shooting with a 22 caliber handgun. A ricocheting bullet struck him in the chest, and doctors decided not to remove it. After this, he was in and out of mental facilities from 1974 to 1977 and was prescribed the drug Thorazine, used in treating anxiety, aggression, and tension, 
by the doctors at the Veterans Administration Hospital in Missouri. After this, Atterbury became a recluse and began living in a green and white Winnebago motorhome in San Antonio, Texas. First at the medical school trailer park, but according to the manager, Clayton Richards, forced Atterbury to move out of his park a year previous because he was always paranoid. He was afraid of something all the time. He said police were always watching him and people were always stealing things. So in 1978, Atterbury moved to Al's trailer park, having his motorhome separated from his neighbors by two empty backtop trailer lots. He always parked his van so his doors were turned away from other residents, and he always kept his curtains closed. He talked to you, but the conversation was never more than a chat. I'm sure he was a veteran because he talked about going into the veteran's hospital. He said he had a problem with his stomach. This information was according to the trailer park's manager, Kate Copeland. She went on to say, He never caused any trouble, but acted strangely on the two occasions when I went to his vehicle. Both times he wouldn't open the door. But as I was leaving the gate, he would look out the window and say, What do you want? He always kept his drapes closed. He never opened his curtains. Atterbury asked her if he could leave his car at the trailer park for three weeks while he was on a trip. She said he told her he was going to stay in town for the Fiesta Parade and then travel to Arkansas and Missouri. She said, I thought it was strange that he went to parades since he had little to do with people. Two weeks before Fiesta, Ira went to a tire shop that was at the corner of East Grayson and Broadway called Burgraff Tire Company and got permission from the store to park his Winnebago in their parking lot for the Battle of Flowers Parade. The night before the parade, Ira got to the tire shop at 6 p.m. and backed his vehicle into the corner space right next to the street. The next day, at 1 p.m., shots came from the back of the vehicle from a 12-gauge shotgun. After the officers were down, he then switched to a semi-automatic military rifle, but the carbine jammed on the second clip of ammunition, and as his motorhome was riddled with bullets and tear gas, Ira put a revolver to his head and pulled the trigger. Now the causes for this shooting could only be explained through speculation. Ira Atterbury's family believed it had to do something with the wreck from 1958. They recalled that after the accident, Ira became a sullen man, disabled and emotionally twisted by the wreck. His brother Howard described how things have been different since that wreck. He imagined things that weren't quite true. I think his injuries caused him to be that way. He thought the police were after him all the time after that. I had no reason to think he would be violent. He tried to do right. He went to church all the time. His brother Herman tried to make sense of things by saying, He told me sometimes he felt someone had something against him and that someone was looking for him. 
Ira had heart trouble, and maybe it caused a blood clot to lodge in his brain, and that could have caused his brain not to work right. His brother Ray said, Ira had a relentless delusion that the police would not stop stalking him. He felt the police were following him all the time, but it was all in his imagination. A Texas jail psychiatrist, Dr. Neville Murray, theorized Atterbury, who presumably had a deep-seated persecution and guilty complex, evidently was even more miserable during Fiesta merriment, and he just couldn't reconcile the good times with his own misery. Many persons who commit acts of violence do so because of fear. We really don't know all the things Atterbury was afraid of, but we are certain he had a guilt complex about the accident he was involved in. Medical examiner Dr. Ruben Santos concluded, Ira committed suicide by firing a 38 caliber bullet into his brain from a pistol found beside his body. He explained that he found nothing physically wrong that would have caused Ira to go berserk. The man's problems were psychological. To my knowledge, there was no brain lesion or tumor found. Physically, he appeared in great shape. But on May 5th, Dr. Santos found traces of PCP, also known as angel dust, in tissue and blood samples. This delay in testing was attributed to having to wait for the necessary equipment to be available. In his report, Santos detailed that he was definitely under the influence of PCP. It probably caused the erratic behavior leading to the attack. While there may have been some previous mental trauma, the influence of PCP is more spectacular now to describe his behavior to that drug. We were looking for some positive reason for his behavior. I didn't think it was completely the mental trauma. We were hoping to find some type of drug. The discovery of angel dust, however, was a surprise, to put it mildly. Not sure how much angel dust had been taken by Atterbury, but a minute amount would be enough to alter behavior. Remember, only a microgram, an incredibly tiny amount, can cause death. PCP, also known as angel dust, is a mind-altering drug that may lead to hallucinations. It is considered a disassociative drug, leading to a distortion of sights, colors, sounds, self, and one's environment. PCP was developed in the 1950s as an intravenous anesthetic, but due to the serious neurotoxic side effects, its development for human medical use was discontinued. PCP is available in a variety of tablets, capsules, and colored powders which are either smoked, taken orally, or snorted. Smoking is the most common route when used recreationally. A study was done reviewing the deaths of 192 PCP-related deaths experienced in Los Angeles County between 1976 and 1978. It looked at the nature of the drug, its effects, and the results from how people react to the drug. PCP users react in a threatening, violent manner when confronted with a threatening situation. And according to coroner's report, the behavior pattern of PCP users is characterized 
by schizophrenic grandiosity, aggressive and threatening behavior, diminished fear, disorientation, and confusion. Ira Atterbury's funeral was held in Poplar Bluff, Missouri on May 1, 1979. His family arrived in five cars for a private service, five brothers and two sisters. Reverend Gail Koppel spoke to reporters for the family, stating, The family have expressed their sorrow to the innocent victim slain or injured in San Antonio. Howard Atterbury, in explaining why the funeral would be closed to reporters, stated, We don't want this to be a show. We don't want people coming to see that crazy sniper. Amelia Castillo's funeral was held on May 2nd. More than 350 people came to pay their respects. Ida Long's funeral was held on May 3rd. I want to say a huge thank you to newspapers.com, mysanantonio.com, battleflowers.org, and all the other great resources that helped me get all the information for this episode. I'll put a link to their work in the show notes. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. Next week is the finale for season two. After that, I'll be taking a few weeks off to prep for season three, where I will be detailing crimes from the 1930s. If you're enjoying this podcast, I would love for you to hit the subscribe button. I would also love for you to rate and review my podcast on iTunes, as it really does help out. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email me at crimesofadecade at gmail.com.